0: Hello, welcome back to TABU, my name's Katrina. I'm joined by Kobe from TAB and Ben Avagdori, lawyer, property investor and entrepreneur. Welcome.
1: Thank you, hi. Uh,
0: Same format as last time, we're gonna be asking the top five questions on hospitality and leisure, starting off with question one. What is the leisure and hospitality industry? Ben, over to you.
1: Thank you, Um, so I suppose, People think of it mainly in hotels, restaurants, pubs, bars, um, and then recently, I suppose, competitive socialising, um, which is obviously a massively growing part of that industry.
0: What, what do you mean by that?
1: So that's when you go with all your mates and you throw some darts and ah. bowl and um, throw an axe.
0: I saw one the other day Mini-golf. where you threw a piece of iron into some clay and there was dynamite and it. Exploded,
1: yeah. I mean, that sounds that sounds difficult to ensure, again <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, essentially, it's 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 hospitality and leisure, I suppose, it's the stuff that people enjoy doing. Um, and you know, in this era, it's the things that we haven't been able to do for quite some time,
2: yeah. Um, and in a property context, like what kind of buildings are used, um,
1: so well it's it's always subject to planning obviously um but historically pubs are always corner you know if you look at pubs they're mainly corners um in newer developments you can you can see that um where you get these big developments in victoria and the city um it's it can be in any type of new building bottom you know office office bottom of office buildings um and then in, in recent years, it's been a bit more creative. You go to warehouses and former industrial units and whew, lots of different things, I suppose. Floating barges and any, anything that you can get planning for, really, I suppose it's subject it's subject to the skill of, 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 the, of the operator in, in convincing a planning officer that he can use that property for that purpose.
0: And what's the most unusual building you've seen in the hospitality and leisure industry? Oh, God, that's a good question.
1: What's <laughs> <laughs> the most unusual one? It's probably going to be a boat, isn't it? Or a barge. Um, those are those are always... I always wonder how easy they are to operate, I suppose. Yeah,
0: um, yeah I can't think of the top of my head. <laughs> you didn't act. prep me for that one. <laughs> Sorry, I do throw in a few <laughs> curveballs. Um, great, well if we go on to question number two, which is, how do pubs make money? So,
1: two ways really, essentially selling food and drink. Um, Drink uh, has always been historically seen as the easier route to profitability because you've got lower cost of sale, um, you don't need um, huge kitchen teams, um, and you can serve lots of drinks in a short space of time. Um, so, pubs like selling drinks a lot, uh, mm-hmm. as, as do restaurants, and restaurants tend to make most of their margin on the wet side of their. So, we, t- we talk about it in terms of sort of wet and dry sales. Um, so, dry being food, wet being drinks, beverages, wine, spirits, beers, whatever. Um, and people like to try and get that wet percentage up as high as possible, which is where they see the most of the
0: margin. And what's the difference between a pub and a restaurant then?
1: Um, essentially, well, a pub or a bar is really sort of vertical drinking, drinking without the need to buy food. Ah. So um, in the old days, you used to have an A4 planning use class, which was um, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was um, drink essentially being able to have a drink without a seated meal. Um, and now I believe A4 has been done away with and you have to apply specifically for that kind of use these days but um restaurants would be you know you sit down you have a meal and then you have drinks with the meal but you can't sit down and have drinks without the meal so, and if you recall under covid what the government tried to do was have the scotch egg rule yeah <laughs> so that was um forcing pubs if you like to make sure that people were sitting down would and, they have and eating to, something
0: would they have had to change their kind of rules for that or because it was kind of a guidance at the time it was okay i think
1: i don't think you were able to to open and serve anything other than you couldn't just serve drinks you had to you had to serve something so people came up with this sort of <laughs> it became known as the <laughs> scotch egg rule um yeah i had many <laughs> there you go <laughs> but obviously you weren't able you haven't been able to go to the bar yeah for a long time um which is lost as it
2: were. so you obviously have experience of Buying pubs—that was part of your yeah. th- your business for a time. Um,
1: buying or, and operating, buying and operating. And yeah. so,
2: what was your thought process? You know, you, in terms of going and finding a site, and then once you'd acquired a site, um, you know, what what would you need to do to improve profitability? So, I guess question one maybe is more of a, a kind of a property focus, yeah. and question two maybe more of an operational focus.
1: Well, so my—I mean, my business model was always high footfall, um, trying to f- focus on corporate workers um so location's number one if you get the location wrong it's quite difficult to succeed uh, unless you've got a very unique model that attracts sort of people that are willing to travel far to come and find you um i don't think i was ever a skilled enough operator to create that you know unique environment so i would always rely on having a great location and then and then step two i suppose is having a good team that can deliver a a great experience for for people to come in and have a drink, have something to eat and enjoy themselves. But corporate bookings and events and parties and all that pre COVID stuff that we used to we used to like. That that was a major part of what, what I did.
2: And about what you talk about great location, I mean I assume that's both within the neighbourhood and the neighbourhood itself? Or or is neighbourhood less important as long as you got the right spot within the neighborhood? I think it's
1: probably the right spot within the neighbourhood first yeah uh and then there's all minutiae that come into it in terms of like how friendly are the council towards pubs and bars some councils are stricter than others what are their rules on standing outside you know um how strict are licensing you know can you get extended hours because obviously the the later you can open the more drinks you're going to sell um but like location's number one if you get the location wrong you cannot fix Cannot fix the business. Alright, So in my you, in my opinion, in my experience,
2: you found the site, you got the location, you're comfortable with the sort of and everything else. This is a site you want to buy. You go, you get the site. Yep. Then, like operationally, what are the sort of first say three steps that you need to, to turn it around or to get it to the level of profitability that you, you you're targeting?
1: Staff, always staff. Number one, um, the right the right staff team will will help you build the right business. Um, but you can, the thing is, you can never change your location, but you can always change your staff. Um, and then beyond that, you got you got to treat the customer right, price it correctly, make sure you're hitting the right um, demand. So, you know, opening up a vegan restaurant in the middle of Spitalfields Market, probably not a great idea. Biggest meat market in London. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> things like that, I suppose. Uh, just make sure you cater to the audience um if you're in the city what do people in the city like to do if you're in the west end you've got a theatre crowd you've got a tourist crowd um people coming in at different times of day to the, to what they were doing in the city to what they were doing a local bar restaurant pub um if you're local then you've got to cater toward kids there's loads of different uh, how important the you? model depends on the area which and depends on the the customers
2: sure and then, uh, I, I guess, relatedly, how important then is, is food? Is you know, you were talking about wet and dry, and how obviously everyone wants to to drive the, the wet sales. Yeah. But In the food- pub and
1: bar world, you want to drive wet wet sales. Obviously, restaurants. I mean, there are plenty of phenomenal chefs who are you know selling food and 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 making money out of doing that. But that wasn't. That wasn't my model.
2: Yeah, so staying um, staying within the pub world, yeah. how important is food? Is it sideshows? it need to be good no, enough? No, Does it, it need to be excellent? What's no, no, your... it, needs to be,
1: it needs to be... I always aim for an 8 out of 10. Uh, you always want people to leave thinking, yeah, that was a great meal and we had a good time and we had a few drinks. Um, if you push them to expect more than that and you can't deliver it, it becomes a problem. If it's worse than that, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you don't... you you just want people to leave and think, yeah, we'll go back. Yeah. If they have a bad meal, they're probably not gonna come back. If they have a bad drink, are they gonna come back? Probably. People don't have, as, you know, they're not as sensitive, if you like, to a bad drink as they are to a bad meal. So food is critic, critically important to the success of the business, but it's not your profit center. In the, in the sort of very, the majority of the sort of generic pubs and bars, um, it's, not your, it's not your driver
0: so question number three is what are the key things to consider when setting up and running a pub uh, we've kind of touched on location and yeah. we've kind of touched on staff yeah but let's say i've got my location and i know who i want to hire yeah. what's the kind of first step if i want to set up a pub well, it-
1: branding how you're going to position yourself in the marketplace and then all of the, everything that flows from that so look and feel design customer exp- always goes back to customer experience in terms of how they, you know, when they walk in, what are they going to see? Where are the toilets going to be situated? Where there's, where's the bar going to be situated? How, are they going to be greeted when they walk in? Um, how many low seats are there going to be to high seats or bar seats or cubicles or indoor seating outdoors? You know, there's all that stuff that goes into it. Um, and then all your systems that go into in the back of house systems, which are crit- equally critically important. It's a science, very much a science yeah. in terms of deliver it you know you can't it is a science every aspect of it has critical points that you need to do well in otherwise you will be unsuccessful
0: and is that stuff you've learned over the kind of years of yeah, doing absolutely. this or are there people you can get in to help you is there you know, particular interior designers who specialise in pubs yeah of course but, there are yeah. or you know someone you can hire and just does the whole package but you just own the pub
1: I think there are people you can go to who sort of And I've I've done a bit of that since I came out of um, my business um, a couple of years ago. I've done a bit of that and helped people people sort of set things up or point things out that maybe you wouldn't know if you hadn't done it before. Um, But, yeah, I mean, essentially you have to know a lot of it and then you have to know what you don't know in order to go and find the people who do know. Um, So, you know, in life, really, it's like... You're more successful in life if you if you know what you don't know. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Um,
0: and what about licensing and stuff like that? You that's, know, that's obviously minefield. Yeah, it feels like one of the hardest things to yeah. Need get a over good licensing
1: line. lawyer. Do your research. Um, look at the area. Look at look at the enforcement notices. Look at who's been told off and what they've been told off for. Um, make sure that the site that you're acquiring, if it's a historic site, look at the licensing history. Um,
2: what about if there are other pubs in the neighborhood is that good or bad because i'm thinking bad in terms of competition but good because they've laid the groundwork maybe the licensing is is in place how how does that work it's
1: it's not there isn't a general rule i like having other pubs and bars in the area that i go into because it means that there's a market there yeah um i suppose if you're the only pub in an area arguably you would think that that was good because there was nowhere else for people to go but then Maybe you don't attract the sort of passing traffic that you would if you were in a... So, for example, if you look at Islington, you look at Upper Street, right? Yeah. Um, every other shop, bar, is a bar, pub, restaurant, takeaway. But there is a very high turnover. But the ones that do well do do very, very well um, because people just know that that's the location they go to. And if and if the restaurant that they wanted to go to is busy, then there's another restaurant, a couple of doors out. Uh, so you get so you get this sort of by osmosis. You get this feed um what was the question (laughs) about
2: whether or not it's good to have a pub you know near so on the licensing side of things yeah
1: so you have things called well in london you have things called stress well westminster have stress areas so parts of london are licensing focus slightly more slightly more of their energy on um so in those areas soho being a good example um really difficult to get extended hours in soho or new licenses in soho um a lot of pressure on drinking on the pavements and things i'm talking everything i'm saying is is very much a pre-covid world because obviously post-covid if you go to soho everyone's now in the streets Mm. and everyone's sitting in the streets and it's 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 a street party essentially but pre-covid it was a very um very sensitive area lots of patrols you'd be visited often obviously there's problems with crime and drugs and all those other things that go into it um but on the whole you want to just make sure that your license that, that the council that you're under has a has a favourable outlook on licensing especially drinking and especially outdoor drinking and standing outside having a party you know we how many times have you driven around the city and on a <laughs> friday evening sunny friday evening and its the pavements are just packed well it's great if you're a customer but i guarantee you that the People who are owning those sites, or running those sites, are just running around panicking, saying, trying to get get those people to come in, or <laughs> disperse, or not block the traffic, or not get run over, and you know all that, all that kind of stuff.
2: And with these thoughts around licensing, reading between the lines, it feels like we're saying that whenever you're going to open a new pub, or you, you've obviously got to go and get your licensing. What about acquiring a pub, a pub that's operating and yeah. has a license, you know, potentially a yeah, successful yeah. pub? When you come in with a change of ownership, does does are you kind of starting afresh? No, you just do. You're just continuing.
1: No, you transfer it. As long as you've got a license, as long as you've got a personal license, you can transfer it. Um, But from a property investor perspective, if you're buying a a pub or a restaurant for that matter, and there is a history of licensing issues, I mean, essentially, the the end of your license is the end of the business. Yeah. So it it should be a fairly important thing that you look at. Yeah. and by that I mean, you know, how many warnings have they had? You know, how many times have they been taken to tribunals? And you know, are their neighbours all over complaining constantly?
2: And if you've seen, say, a smattering of that, would you still be interested? Or you'd,
0: be, you'd certainly be wary.
2: You'd be wary, even with just a few.
0: Hundred percent.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you kind of mentioned a personal license. What? What? What is that? Is that? Oh, i own it. you
1: going on a course okay fine teaching you how to sort of sell alcohol so it's responsibly not a yeah
0: mixologist course. No. <laughs> no so i can yeah, the you council know, I can. don't really care whether you can I make, a decent... to make a great mojito <laughs> correct but they I don't can, care they might not let me run apart yeah they're not fine. interested in <laughs> okay. how good your
1: whiskey sour is they uh just want to know that you you know can spot a 16 year old things like that yeah
0: fine and going <laughs> on to kind of the acquiring of the pub um what kind of funding is out there for that? Or can you get funding for pubs?
1: Well, if, it's, if you're buying a real estate asset, it's just the usual yep. funding lines, I suppose. Business funding, I think it's probably incredibly challenging. Uh, if you're setting up new, definitely. Um, I mean, we could have hours of conversation in terms of how you get into the industry because there are, there is, there are lots of routes through pubcos. Um, but I'm not sure your audience, I'm not sure how interested your audience is in the pubco <laughs> world. But that's another... So you can do management agreements with pubco's. You can do, you know, a myriad of different tenanted style agreements, leases, um, and they would support you. You have to jump through hoops and present business plans and be a competent human being and probably put a bit of money in yourself. Um, but there are ways of getting hold of a pub from all of the big pub. You know, there's, yeah. there's four or five big pubco's in the UK. I mean, it does change and they do tend to buy each other out a lot. Um, but there are there are ways of doing it that way uh, and i imagine in this world now i imagine there's quite a lot of pubs that have closed their doors and mm-hmm. probably a lot of pub codes that are looking for new pub landlords to come in and take over and run their pub for them
0: cool uh thank you well question number four which is how does the leisure and hospitality industry appeal to property investors I guess it's let's go pre COVID and then maybe we yeah, touch on after I mean, COVID.
1: Yeah, I think post COVID it's a difficult it's a very difficult question, I think. Um yeah, you, know, you just have to pray there are no more lockdowns and then and then it and then it's fine. Um pre COVID, how would it appeal? In different ways so in the bigger developments, the bigger landlords, the land sex and the British lands and all those guys that were building um, you know, big multi-use sites in West London and the city, and um, you know, out of town, I suppose they were having lots of different use classes within their developments because they have to tick lots of boxes for the local authorities. So, they, the, the, you know, from that, that's that's a, um, one extreme um, for a sort of average guy looking to go and buy, re, uh, you know, uh, single property assets that have a a restaurant as a tenant why would it be interesting it's a yield and a covenant question in the same way that it is for probably any property investment i mean i suppose you have to take a view on on the covenant don't you Mm. i mean you you could have gone out 10 years ago and bought loads of jamie's italians and would have thought that was a great covenant you know it's it's a it's a tricky world i suppose um I'm not sure how you how how, I don't know why it would be more or less attractive I think it's you have to look at it on its individual merits tenant covenant yield, location ultimately you have then you have all the alternative uses in the event that it ceases to be a pub or restaurant which is something that obviously a lot of people have taken advantage of over the years Um, but I'm not sure I'm not sure it would be any more or less appealing if you like as a property owner
2: yeah, I think uh, what I'm hearing is also that as a sort of new entrant to the to the market, as an investor, it's something to be really wary of. It feels like uh, a lot of expertise is needed to be, you know, confident about making an investment.
1: Yeah, I think I think property landlords don't necessarily understand the way that the industry works as well as they would if they were buying a sort of hairdressers on the high street or an office building. You know, there's not that many external factors that affect those types of businesses um, in the same way that the restaurant, pub, and restaurant industry.
2: So it's more volatile, basically.
1: I think so. I think people. I think people probably historically know that.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, you gave a great example, Jamie's Italian. You know. I know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm mean, <laughs> Gotta be. Gotta be not.
1: That was just one of many, many chains. Yeah over the course of time, you know, casual dining, I think it's very well documented, that have struggled. Um, you know, in, an, in another life, 15 years ago, I was I was gazumped on something, because someone thought Woolworths were a better tenant than I was um, at the time. And then six months later, Woolworths didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just, a, it's a moment, right?
0: Cool, well, I guess we'll move on to question number 5 which is what had the biggest impact on the leisure and hospitality industry Brexit or Covid yeah, that's a good I question. mean <laughs> Well look
1: I think the the easy answer is Covid clearly um because I think it's it's a, it's a once in a millennium
0: I mean what's Brexit hey once in a millennium <laughs> event
1: I think the problem the, I think what people forget about the effect of Covid on the leisure and hospitality industry is how much people were suffering pre because of Brexit and not because of not because of the actual act of leaving the union. It's it actually Brexit for the le- hospitality and leisure happened on whatever day it was in June twenty sixteen um, when we voted to leave, um, and then all hell broke loose. From a you know ninety percent of people employed in the industry, certainly in London, were you know EU um, EU nationals, French and Spanish and Italian and Polish and Eastern European, and and um, and we had. Yeah, and then there's quite a lot of, I suppose, from Australia, New Zealand, other places. Um, so
2: what's the bearing there?
1: All of those people then had a question mark as to whether or not they could stay in the UK on that day. And they didn't know if it was going to be a year. They didn't know if they could bring their partners over. They didn't know if they could have children here. So that created a sort of short, immediately a shortage of staff. So people that were thinking of coming didn't. People that were already here, some went home. At the same time, the currency was on the floor, so actually earning sterling at the time was not as attractive as it had been historically. Um, so that caused attrition and people off they went. So hiring people became really difficult. There was there was a weird moment for about a year where it wasn't wasn't such a moment where you literally could not hire pizziolas for pizza restaurants. They were like a commodity in London, um, and the sort of you used to, you used to pay a pizza sort of four four fifty a week and then all of a sudden you're paying them five fifty six hundred quid a week uh so wages obviously had in, wages inflation um all your suppliers who were buying stuff from europe and you know wine from new zealand south africa australia south america they decided that they would be hit massively by brexit and all the prices went up um so brexit was a major major problem and it and it the, the industry was sort of starting to figure out how to operate in a brexit environment and then covid came
2: and then <coughs> brexit came and then then real brexit came and yeah. <laughs> what do you know of how it is you know at the coal face now staffing's
1: with... ma- massive problem how, staffing's always been a problem is and it just seems at the moment it's i think it, i think it's widely reported in the new, in the sort of national news that getting hold of staff because people who weren't working, or, or maybe weren't furloughed, who actually lost their jobs, went and found other things to do. You know, you're trying to, you're now trying to sort of bring those people back from other industries. Um is a big problem, and, and any- then a, a shortage of staffing creates wage inflation, right? Because you have got to pay more to get, you know, and that's, and that's the problem.
2: So it's a double whammy. Very much so. And uh, I guess that things like trade and you know think goods coming in and out is probably less relevant to sort of and housing ledger cuz quite local or is that no not, no right, you, not no. that right assumption no something I'm, I'm thinking about all the red tape and you know the delays I think, it's, I
1: think there aren't i think yeah i mean obviously we we're all buying stuff from suppliers um so we're not necessarily shipping stuff in ourselves um but yeah suppliers will tell you that there are it's more problematic and things take things take a bit longer um, I don't know the full ins and outs of it. Um, I do hear from time to time that something's stuck in a port somewhere, and that's why we haven't had our delivery of Sauvignon Blanc from yeah, New sure. Zealand or whatever it is. Sure. Um, but yeah, I think I think Brexit, hospitality industry, predominantly, I think if you speak to people who are actively operating pubs and bars today, I think they will tell you it's staff. Num- you know, number one is staffing. Staffing's just. Brexit plus COVID has just been.
0: Do you be, think when the furlough problem. ends that that kind of staffing thing might change, or I guess well, that's yeah. Like I, think, I think
1: I think it ends in September, doesn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, you hope it gets better.
0: Yeah. But
1: what normally happens is the industry, t- you know, you just tend to figure out a new way of working. They just just adjust. They just adjust.
0: Yeah, I suppose we've got kind of the QR codes in order online, which must save a lot of time in terms of actual. Maybe that's a yeah, yeah. But next. someone's still got to make the food and make the drink, <laughs> and maybe no that's yeah.
2: <laughs> what do you what do you see for the sort of the, the short and medium term for the industry? <clears throat> I mean, assuming that we we carry on on this, I, I know we're not today in an upward trajectory, but assuming COVID does you know dissipate in the way that we hope, you know, in a sort of post-COVID, post-Brexit world, what do you see for the the industry?
1: I think. Um... I think the extension of the forfeiture moratorium is probably incredibly helpful. Um, certainly so for what's the, that? the forfeiture moratorium, so they can't kick the they can't kick anyone out at the moment. Oh, okay. Landlords can't. So not obviously. I'm sure there's a lot of landlords jumping up and down, um, but there's probably a lot of tenants breathing a sigh of relief because it just pushes the can down the road a bit. Um, and you would hope, but by the time that that forfeiture moratorium expires, that they've got enough juice and cash flow and belief in the business that it, they can, you know push forward and come to agreements on rent arrears and whatever else that they're um, facing um i think i think the industry look people will always eat out people always go out they'll all stay in hotels they they want to go to parties they want to have parties they want to go to concerts it's always going to exist and the industry will always find a way of making it exist. i think the one thing which was very evident before covid and you speak to any operator the disconnect between what property owners think a tenant can afford in rent and what a tenant can actually afford in rent has been something that's that I think may, hopefully ho- hopefully this, this episode might fix that. You might see a move towards more, less fixed rents and more turnover-style deals and turnover-style rents, especially in the places where landlords are struggling to find tenants. Landlords um, yeah. are just going to have to be very much more creative as
2: in there's motivation on both sides to find that middle ground and therefore they might adopt these kinds of um yeah leases
1: yeah they're gonna have to otherwise they're just you know who's gonna sign up for a fixed 10-year rent you know no one i mean world's changed when i started out as a lawyer 20 plus years ago 25-year leases were you know bread and butter every day you'd get a new heads of turns for a 25-year lease I don't. <laughs> I don't think anyone signs twenty-five year leases anymore. I think you're lucky if you get ten. So you know, it has changed, and I think it will continue to change. It will just become more and more flexible. But the the dish, the issue in our indes- in in the hospitality industry is that the fit out costs of these sites are big. And actually, maybe even going back to your point is why is it interesting to 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 an investor? I Actually, didn't think about that at the time. But you know, you have to put so much money into the site that you're actually making a big big commitment to the site. Mm-hmm. Um that you don't own and you're putting a, you know, you're laying out a big amount of capital. Um, so doing that, you don't want to do that if you don't have the right lease terms. It's a challenge, you just got to find the balance, have a, you know, find a clever lawyer.
2: But overall you're, you, you <laughs> feel confident for the future of the industry.
1: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Hundred. The customer decides whether the industry survives or not, Not the. Landlords and operators just have to figure out a way of making it work. I don't think there's any
2: shortage of demand there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm i think, everywhere
1: this week. I mean, what you're seeing at the moment, so it's plenty of people I know in the industry, I think you're seeing, a, you're definitely seeing a, a bounce back now. People are desperate to go out. Yeah. There are people are going out, they're enjoying themselves. Last summer they did the eat out to help out, which was astonishingly helpful for the industry. Um, and obviously you're still in an environment of low vat i think it's five percent um a lot of people aren't paying rates i think rates coming back sooner than than actually quite soon actually hopefully they're starting to pay their rent but maybe on reduced rates so there's an opportunity for the hospitality industry to sort of put some cash away now um and they certainly did last summer well they certainly were able to make up for some of the some of the revenue that they lost we haven't even gotten to takeaway businesses. I mean, they were they did they oh, did God, fine. Yeah, they did fine during COVID. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I feel like my delivery was being the, the door was being knocked every five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> quite embarrassed actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a ma-
1: there is a big difference between sort of a grab and go sandwich place in the city to a takeaway in a local high street. Yeah, you know, if you spoke to the owner of the, of both, they would tell you a very different story about COVID. True.
0: Well, hopefully it'll end soon and. I can continue to eat out lots.
1: Yeah, very much. <laughs> so <we> stay positive.
0: <laughs> All right, well, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, it's been really, really interesting. Uh, that's been Tab U podcast on hospitality and leisure. Make sure you like, subscribe and comment and share. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Great. Good. Thank you very Great. much. Whew. happy I yeah hate yeah that.
2: dry straight run through very smooth yeah very oh. fluent yeah.